I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, thank you for being here, whether you're watching online, listening later through a podcast, or on any of our campuses, as we are in the second week of a study of the wonderful book of Revelation. Now, I began with a story of a physics professor giving his college class a lecture on a very complicated physics principle. And after some moments, one of the students, quite frustrated, blurted out, why do we have to learn this stuff? And the professor said calmly, to save lives. And he went on with his lecture. But after a few more minutes, he was interrupted by the same student who said, so how does physics save lives? And the professor looked at that student for a long time and then said, physics saves lives because it keeps certain people out of medical school. (laughs) Just because something seems confusing does not mean it is unimportant. And that's why we're studying the book of Revelation. We said last week, we admit it can seem very confusing. And so often we avoid the book. We treat the book like some of you when you go to family reunions. Hold up your hand if in your family you've got a weird cousin or uncle. Just hold up your hand. Okay. And if you didn't hold up your hand, that means that when you go to the family reunion... You are the weird cousin or uncle. And so, like that weird uncle, we've got this book of Revelation, and it's in the family. It belongs in the Bible. But we avoid it as much as we can. And so I want you to get over that fear. And maybe this will help. If you remember that the book of Revelation is not going to say anything anything you can't find somewhere else in the Bible. It's just going to say it in a new way. Because really, the entire Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Bible is to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author and he is the subject of the whole Bible. And particularly the last book, because it begins that this revelation is from Jesus, and it is about Jesus. He is the content, and he is the agent 
of the revelation. And so remember, we're simply exploring a different way of saying what the Bible has been saying all the way through. And the reason God has given us different ways to hear the same message is because God knows it's difficult for us to maintain focus on the big picture. You see, one thing that makes Revelation difficult is that it is a hybrid document. Now, let me explain, and I'm going to take a few minutes here, and don't get bored. This is very important. Genre matters. When you want to make an important point, you pick a form, whether it's a song or it's a poem or it's a lecture, you pick a form that helps you make that point. Now, when you get to the book of Revelation, it's not just one form, it's three. It's an epistle. It is written by a real pastor named John to real churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. A real pastor is writing to real churches who are facing a real crisis. Because the current Caesar named Domitian has decided that he should be worshipped as God and called Lord by all the empire. And if you are a Christian, you can't go there. So I don't agree with those who see Revelation, the first chapter or two, talking to churches. And the whole rest of the book talking about something centuries later. Whatever you do with Revelation, it has got to bless and encourage real churches facing a real crisis in a letter received from a real pastor. It's an epistle, but it's not just an epistle. It is also prophetic literature. In fact, four times John calls what he wrote a prophecy. Now, you hear the word prophecy and immediately you hear prediction. There's no question some parts of Revelation are predictive and talk about things coming in the future. But you need to know that when the Bible uses the word prophecy or prophesy, only 12% of the time is it predictive. And even then, it's to serve a current expectation. The purpose of prophecy, the intent of prophecy is to produce change. That's why John starts and ends Revelation with these words. Blessed is he who heeds, who keeps, who obeys the words of this prophecy. Now, question. How do you obey a prediction? If I was to say to you, I predict that in 2014, the Dallas Cowboys will win the Super Bowl. You would, now I want you to go obey my prediction. You'd think I was crazy for two reasons. Number one, you can't obey a prediction. And number two, the Cowboys can't win the Super Bowl until Jerry Jones stops running the team. So I want you to check me on this. We call it an eschatology. That just means theology of last things, last times. Every passage in the New Testament that talks about the future 
Every single one that talks about Jesus coming back is bracketed by text about ethics. Every time God gives you a glimpse of the future, he does it to change how you're living in the present. Now, this is very important because if we don't read it that way, we'll try to make Revelation do things it doesn't intend to do. History is littered with failed attempts of Christians to read Revelation, make a chart, and predict the end of the world. Even when Jesus says, no one knows when I'm coming back. The most popular Christian book of the last century turned into a movie about how everything is going to end based on revelation. And this symbol stands for that country and that symbol stands for that person has been rewritten six different times because it keeps being wrong. And people keep buying the books. I'm suggesting that the purpose of the book isn't to help you make a chart, but to help you make better choices. Because it's a prophecy, and prophecy calls on us to change. But finally, and this is where it gets a little complicated. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That's a big word that simply means the unveiling. And apocalyptic literature was a genre that was very popular from about 200 years before Christ to 200 years after Christ... And remember this, it was resistance literature. It was a kind of literature that grew up by people under oppression to speak to their situation and alter their reality. There's a lot of apocalyptic books written in these days, and they all have this in common. They use heavenly beings and weird creatures. And symbols and numbers and metaphors to send a coded message of hope to people who are oppressed by the current world power. The best modern illustration I could give you is many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis or the Lord of the Rings books by Tolkien. And in both of those series... The authors are basically telling the gospel in a different way. They created a new world with new creatures and new characters, simply using a different way to tell the story. And so when you read apocalyptic literature, you don't read it literally. You don't believe that when you go to heaven, Jesus is literally going to be a lamb. He's going to have a glorified body just like you are. But you read apocalyptic literature naturally, and you don't try to take it apart, making every little thing stand for something, but you get the big picture. Let me illustrate. Recently, I got some cards made by our toddler class. Now, this was the first card. And all it is is stickers of animals, zebras, hippotamuses, lions, and soccer balls, and crosses and rainbows. Now, when I got this, I didn't try to figure out what every single sticker stood for. I got the big message. We like preacher Rick. That's what it's saying. 
I got another one. Now, this one has stickers too, and this one has a few attempts to write their names. What is the point? Don't tear it apart by trying to make every little thing mean something different. It just means we love Preacher Rick. And I got one more, and this one, the teachers helped some, and the teachers wrote down things the kids said. Like, I want Preacher Rick to come here. Um, I am thankful for Preacher Rick because I love him. Now, one did say, do you like cats? (laughs) Which means, of course, that we have at least one toddler who is an unbeliever. And needs to be brought to repentance. (laughs) Don't butcher this genre by trying to make it be more than it is. Apocalyptic is a message to oppress people with a big story that God's in control. He's going to have the last word. Evil empires and men are going to get judged. And faithfulness is worth it. Even if it cost you your life. Now, they had an advantage that we don't have. Advantage number one, they were familiar with the genre and we're not. And advantage number two, they knew their Old Testaments better than we do. And scholars say that in 400 verses of Revelation, there are about 500 allusions To the Old Testament, especially the Exodus. And what's the story of the Exodus? That the people of God are oppressed under a wicked world power. And it looks hopeless until God shows up. So John's a pastor. And he's trying to help his churches survive their harsh reality by pulling back the curtain and showing them a greater reality. And the big picture starts with a picture of a big Jesus. And so they've sent him off to exile on this little rock in the middle of the ocean. But it's the Lord's day, and so he's going to worship, and he finds himself in the Spirit worshiping. And he hears a voice telling him to write down what he sees, and he does exactly what you would do. He turns around to see who that voice is. And here's what he saw. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I 
hold the keys of death and the grave. Now say it again. If you're going to get the big picture, you're going to have to picture a big Jesus. A Jesus at first is ruling over the church. John looks and he's amidst the lampstands. He holds the angels of the churches in his hand. And the message is, remember, Rome is not your boss. Jesus is. And the church must always remember this. That our greatest need is not a hot new program or a cool new website. But a clearer picture of Jesus and a stronger commitment to his lordship because here's what happens and I don't know that we even mean for this to happen but the gravitational pull of life causes us to drift and before you know it church is less and less about Jesus and more and more about us and if you think I'm wrong just listen to the complaints church people make And Jesus becomes nothing more than an accessory to the church. The risen Lord reduced from master to mascot. But Revelation won't let us get away with that. It forces us to picture Jesus bigger. That he is more than just your therapist. Who's supposed to show up when you need to talk about your hurts and your feelings. John says, there was this sword coming out of his mouth. And what he means is that his words are authoritative. And it forces us to ask, whose words carry the most weight in your life? Who is it? More than anybody else that speaks and you jump the highest. It forces the church to ask the question. Whose words carry the most weight in the church? Is it the person with the most money? The person that complains the most? Is it the culture that says you better be politically correct or we'll call you bigots? Is it the government that says you better do what we want or we'll shut you down? Whose voice is the church going to listen to? Because the big picture says Jesus does not exist to please us. The church exists to please him. Now this is the truth and it's good news. Because it means that Jesus alone decides the destiny of the church. Now this is why empires of men cannot exterminate the church and they should not intimidate the church the caesars and the dictators and the generals they've come and they've gone and haven't you noticed that throughout history and even today in the governments that are the most hostile to the church the church grows the fastest because the empires of men don't rule the church Jesus does. He decides how long the candlestick stays. This is the true picture. And it's big. And we can believe it because Jesus is also ruling over the darkness. You see that his face is brilliant like the sun. His hair is white. And 
It's saying that he doesn't just have authority, but he's absolute purity. Evil hasn't touched him. Evil can't influence him. He influences evil. And that's the real question of faith, isn't it? If Jesus is Lord, why is the world still so evil? If Jesus is big, why are babies not safe in wombs and children not safe in schools? The well-known actor Robert De Niro said several years ago in an interview, if there is a God... He's got a lot of explaining to do. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to sit down and ask him to explain himself. And Revelation would suggest that Mr. De Niro has that backwards. That when he stands before God, he will have to do the explaining. Because in this vision, evil is real. And it's really bad. But it's not so much because of the empire. The real battle is not between the church and the empire. John pulls back the curtain and we find out the real battle in the cosmos is between God and Satan. And what Revelation is going to tell us is that Jesus Christ defeated Satan at the cross. But... While defeated, he's not yet executed. He's been cast out of the presence of God. That's the good news. The bad news is, well, where is he? And Revelation 12 says, woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Because he knows that his time is short. And so Revelation says, you can expect a world where it seems like all hell has broken loose. He is furious. He is angry. He is spiteful. He knows his execution is coming. And he can't touch Christ. But he can still touch you. But did you notice that when John saw this figure, he was wearing a robe, he was wearing a sash, he was not wearing a shield. Because God is not threatened by evil. In fact, evil takes orders from the throne. Later, we're going to get to the parts of the book that seem really crazy, and we're going to read some crazy stuff. Seals are going to be broken, and trumpets and bowls of wrath are going to be poured out on the earth, and terrible things are going to happen, and it's going to feel like all hell has broken loose. And every time one of these things happens, we're going to see this little phrase about peals of lightning and thunder and earthquake have broken out. Oh, but you see, before we get there, we're going to go up to the throne room in chapter 4. And we're going to see the Almighty. And we're going to read in verse 5 that from the throne 
came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And the picture is saying that even when it seems like all hell has broken loose, God is still in control. Now here's what that means. Revelation is not promising you a life of no struggle if you follow Jesus. You can still get cancer or lose your job. Your kids can still rebel. The fact that God is sovereign over evil does not mean your life will be tribulation free. It means your life can be tribulation proof. It means that you don't have to cower in the darkness, but you can shine in it. In fact, just like John, it is often when we are on our own Patmos that we get our most explosive revelation of Jesus. That some of you in the darkest moments of your life received had an encounter with Jesus that totally changed everything and prepared you for darkness final threat you see Jesus is ruling over the grave Rome said that she Held the keys of death. And Jesus called her bluff. Look again, verse 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look. I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. If you've been to Moscow and went to the Kremlin, you probably saw the preserved body of Vladimir Lenin, the founder of communism. Many people go by every day to see that body and to read a plaque on that crypt that says... He was the greatest leader of all people of all time. He was the Lord of a new humanity. He was the Savior of the world. I have one problem with that plaque. He's dead. (laughs) There's only one ruler, only one, that death could not hold. Every other Caesar, every other emperor, every other dictator, every other president is dead. But one king said to death, you can't hold me. And since he has authority over death, he's got the ability to turn death into gain. And so over and over in Revelation, we're going to read a word, and the word is witness. Jesus was the first faithful witness and over and over we're going to be called to witness and you need to know that in the Greek language the word witness is the same word as the word martyr because in John's day 
to stand up and be bold and speak for Jesus might cost you your life. The devil knows the best way to get the church to shut down is to get the church to shut up. We can't let that happen. We have to live out loud our faith. We have to live out loud the reality of the big picture and the truth of the gospel, even if it costs us our lives. And that's so easy for you to hear and me to say. But you know right now, some people online are listening to this who live in countries where if they live out loud, they can go to jail. But if Satan's greatest threat is to kill and the believer's greatest victory is to die witnessing to Christ who holds the trump card back when Romania was still a brutal communist regime there was a Baptist pastor named Joseph Ton. He snuck out of the country to go to England to go to seminary. And when he finished his studies, he told his classmates he was going to go back home. And they told him not to go. They said it could be too tough. They said, you know what will happen. So he prayed about it. And the Lord impressed upon him Matthew 10, 16. Where Jesus told his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves. And the Lord said, Joseph, what chance does a sheep have of surviving surrounded by wolves? Much less converting the wolves. That's how I send you. And so we went back. Immediately it started. Phone getting tapped, family getting followed. Arrest after arrest after arrest. And in one of those times, he's interrogated and a communist official threatens to kill him. And Joseph Ton says, go ahead. He says, by now you know my sermons are all over the country. And if you kill me, I will seal them with my blood. And they will be ten times more powerful than they are now. And they sent him home. Joseph said, it's ironic that many years I tried to save my life and I was losing it. When I finally tried to lose my life, I saved it. Because the officials knew he's dangerous, alive. He's a whole lot more dangerous dead. And so they sent him into exile. We're called to live for a bigger purpose than just to survive. And to do that, we need a bigger picture of Jesus. And so I'm going to close with basically the same message I closed with last week. I don't think most of us want to see how wicked we can be. But a lot of us feel like I'm living beneath all I'm supposed to be in Christ. And here's what I think the problem is. I think our failures are rooted more in 
awlessness than in lawlessness. Most of you are not going to wake up tomorrow wanting to do bad things, wicked things, evil things. But what's going to happen is that we're going to get so caught up in the details of life that we forget who Jesus is. And we live beneath our calling, not because the pressure on us is so great, but because our picture of Jesus is still so small. When was the last time you had an encounter with Jesus that was so explosive you couldn't stand up anymore? Now, I didn't ask that question metaphorically. But like John, when was the last time you had a moment with Jesus so profound you just had to get on your knees or even just fall on your face? What Revelation is going to do is help us recover the magnificence of Jesus. And that bigger view is going to change us, even if we're on Patmos. And so I read recently about a fairly well-known pastor. His name is Ed Dobson. And in the year 2000, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And the doctor told him, you probably have only a couple of years to live. Well, he wanted to be anointed with oil And he wanted someone to pray for his healing. And he wanted someone that really believed in healing to do the praying. So we had a good friend that was a Pentecostal pastor. And he said, I went to see him and the night changed my life. He said, he started by telling me stories of people that he prayed for that received miraculous healing. And then he told me stories of people he prayed for that never were healed in the body but died to receive the ultimate healing in the spirit and then he said this he said Ed do not get obsessed about healing if you get obsessed with getting healed you will lose your focus Get lost in the wonder of God. And who knows what he will do for you. Well, 12 years later, Ed Dobson still lives with Lou Gehrig's disease. And he will tell you they've been some of the best and most fruitful years of ministry. Because he tries every day to live in awe of God. And so last week I said throughout this whole series, would you just pray that God would open up your eyes to see Jesus better? Now I want to actually give you a prayer to pray. I want you to begin to pray, Lord, help me to be an awful Christian. And if you do, 
you'll never see Patmos the same. Bow your heads, please. I'm going to pray over you in a second, but first I want you to do something for me. I want you to picture Patmos. What is your Patmos? What is right now in your life the greatest area of pressure you're feeling? I want you to get a picture of it right now. Now next, I want you to see Jesus in your mind. Just picture Jesus. Now here's the question. Which picture is bigger? If your Patmos is bigger than Jesus, you need to ask God to give you a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. And if your Jesus is bigger than your Patmos, then ask God to give you the courage to start living like what you see. Oh God, in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, we need a new revelation. Amen. Let's all stand. Prayer team is going to take their place at the front. We're going to spend a moment and we are going to be in awe of God in worship. We're going to tell Him how great He is. And the Holy Spirit's doing a work on some of you right now. Respond to it. Come receive prayer. Come confess Christ. Come put on Jesus in baptism. Come ask for help. Come and live a bigger reality while we tell God what we believe about Him.